If you're just joining us, I suggest you go back and listen from chapter one, titled The Shooting. This is the second part of episode four. Before we get started, a content warning. This episode contains accounts of domestic and sexual violence, as well as a fair amount of cursing. So at this point, instead of dragging us all through voir dire, which we did, and we hope no one ever has to do again, we're going to swap stories of some of the most incredulous and incredible jury strikes in the pool and why they stuck out for us. I think this is going to be this is going to change the tone of the pod like for real because yeah, for this real. is the first time we're like really vibing with yes, each other in yeah. the room. It's not a storytelling. It's not storytelling. It's commentary. Yeah. Uh but I kind of like it. No, I like it too. And I think um we told everybody we'd make it be making some jokes. <laughs> and we could do a little uh like we could do a little precursor. Like hey, listen, you're going to hear a switch into um more commentary. Just, like analysis and commentary and it's going to be a lot more looser. It's going to be there's going to be some laughter and some jokes. So again, just a reminder we're taking this very seriously, so I don't want anybody to think that we've taken anything lightly about this case, but there, um, there are just some things that uh, you, if, you, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. I mean, yeah, I it's just, the absurdity of yeah. it. Like, honestly, it's absurd. Some of the stuff that we're going to say on this podcast <laughs> is absurd to the point where it's like, how did that actually happen? And it's, it would be unbelievable if you didn't have a transcript of it. This is Panic Button. I'm Leslie Briggs. And I'm Colleen McCarty. So like what we were talking about, the idea that you're supposed to be tried by a a jury of your peers. And here we know that anybody in this jury pool that even mentions having any kind of experience with domestic violence gets the boot, right? So yeah, it's kind of like where the jurisprudence collides because it's like we want to have a jury of our peers but we also have to have the jury be impartial and it's almost come to mean that if you've had those experiences in your life you can't be impartial about things that the experience itself would cause you to over identify with the the defendant in a way that you can't make a good decision and so We've come to this place, I think, in American jury trials where people are getting cut because they have too much in common with the defendant or they're too much of a peer. Uh, And then you get left with a group of people that are almost like so far removed from the experience of the person being tried that they can't even relate in any way. Yeah. I mean, I like I understand the imperfections of the system, I guess. It's just it just is such a. It's so telling to me that every single person in this jury pool, and there are many of them that have domestic violence in their life, are the ones that get cut. There was some open questions from Tim Harris to the jury pool about, like, does it make you think differently about this case? The fact that the defendant is a young, pretty, he actually says moderately attractive woman. Um, He asks that question to the people and the people are like, no, it doesn't make me think that, like, should it? And then they start thinking about it. And one of them actually says, I was surprised to see how young she is. And he says, is that going to cause you to not give her a life sentence or an LWOP? 
And she says, no. Yeah, I kind of get that from like a devil's advocate playing over here. One of the few things I get that Tim Harris did is like, I've got a really smart, I've, like we've talked about that she's super sympathetic. And like people, <laughs> there's like all kinds of studies about how like people uh, like tend to believe and like enjoy and favor more attractive people, right? Like, you know what I mean? If an attractive person is telling you something, you're going to buy it more than if a, a total hag is is telling you it, right? <laughs> so like, speaking as a hag, no. <laughs> Coming from the hag <laughs> It's true. That's what I'm here to provide. <laughs> but in this jury pool, we have, I think, eight women who self-select out and say, I have been in a, I have either lived in a home where there was violence or I have been the victim of, of domestic intimate partner violence. And then we have one very special case that we're going to talk about in a minute of a potential juror that was a man who... Um, identifies himself as someone who has committed a crime. And when they ask him out in the open um, what his crime was, he says it was a gun charge. Uh, and then they take a recess. And then the next morning, Tim Harris and the judge pull that juror into chambers and they tell him that we looked you up. And it wasn't actually a gun charge. It was a negligent homicide that he got a four-year deferred sentence on. And they ask him to tell that story. And the story that he tells is insane. It is that he received a prior domestic um, against his girlfriend at the time, four years prior. And he tells the judge and the district attorney that she pushed him out of the house and he actually called the cops, but that he was the one that they charged with domestic violence. And then the next year, um, he's still with this woman. He goes over to her house. She's really depressed. She has a gun. And he goes into the kitchen to get a couple of beers, comes out, and she has shot herself under the chin. Or like, he, I think he actually says, here, I'm, I just pulled it up in the transcript. So I put the weapon up against the table at that time. I went into the kitchen to get a something to drink, two beers. And when I came walking back in the room, she said, goodbye put the gun in her mouth and blew her, and he says, killed herself. I, and then turned and completely, I don't know, my mind went racing, so I called the police and I went down to the police station and the whole nine and they, you know, talked to me about it. It was voluntarily, they said it would be better for me if I went to Vanita for 72 hours observation and they escorted me up there. So I had, I had forgotten that tidbit that he had been- He went to ESH too. Yeah, he'd been committed. Um, I guess he agreed to go, but it would have been against his will. So we have a situation here where he took a plea for a four-year deferred sentence, which for our listeners who are not legally inclined, that's basically probation, um, out time, as we say. Uh, and that is for being in a room with someone who they have domestic altercations with in the past, who the person dies. Very similar to April's case, previous domestic altercations, being the only one in the room who can testify to what happened, the person dies. And yet he gets a four-year deferred out time sentence and she is facing life or a life without parole for premeditated murder. And her plea deal was a 20-year plea deal, right? Like, so this guy pleads out for four years deferred? I mean, we can't say what the evidence was. Like, maybe it was irrefutable evidence that she shot herself. But at the same time, it's just like the stark, disparate nature of those two things is for them to be as similar as they are 
is pretty crazy. So that guy gets so he gets bounced. <laughs> he gets bounced for for cause. Actually, it's not even a peremptory strike. So I would agree. He cannot be fair or impartial in this case because he was one a perpetrator in a domestic violence claim, and then two present in the room when someone was shot, either by this person himself or by the person who shot herself. We don't know, but. Both of those two things, I would unequivocally say, make you unable to be impartial on a jury trial where someone was shot in a domestic. Yeah. Even if you have these experiences, if you testify during voir dire that you can be fair and impartial, that you can set that aside, then there really isn't a forecast strike. It's a good segue into another potential juror, right, who gets stricken not for cause, but on a peremptory strike by the state who had a, you know, a three-year domestic violence relationship with her husband. They were both military, ex-military, and you know, increasingly abusive and an alcoholic and increasingly violent and emotionally abusive. And so what she testifies to really in, in Wadir is that I had to prove to them, them being the police, that there was domestic problems there. When all this was going on, there was not an awareness of domestic violence that there is now. And I was put in a position that I had to make the cops believe me that there was a problem. They would ask me, how come you can't protect yourself? How come you can't protect your kids? It's interesting that in, in like the present day, we all kind of think, oh, things are better now. You know, but we can look back yeah. at 1999 and go, fuck, no, it wasn't. It wasn't much better. I mean, damn, like. I want to say just quickly before we start talking about the jury strikes, um, that Tim Harris actually tells the jury I am here not to win or lose, but to get at the truth. And I think if I had been Chris Lyons, I would have objected to that because I think it is um, super improper and misleading because he absolutely had a motive to be there. He absolutely was there to get a conviction. And to say anything different to the jury like that really puts April in an impossible position because if he's there for the truth, what's April there for? Right. Well, and we wouldn't even be sitting in this courtroom if he didn't have a goal because he could have pled this out or he could have dismissed it or he could have, you know, he could have not filed it in the first place because it's the most credible self-defense claim that's ever existed. Yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, because that's the other thing that's happening during Wadir is like, this is one of three times that you get to talk directly to the jury. And so your efforts at persuasion have begun. They cannot ask you questions during the trial. They cannot ask questions of the witnesses during the trial. They cannot speak. Once the trial begins, they have no more, they are like, there is a third wall between you and the jury, except for the court. The court gets to talk to the jury, but you as an attorney, you don't. And so literally for them to see you as a person who has a goal, who has something that you have come to this courtroom to accomplish, this is the only time that they get to see that of you and you get to relate directly to them. And th in that moment, that's when they decide if they like you or not. Uh, like, so to contrast with how Tim Harris opens, right? He's like, it's a good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Tim Harris. Here's Rebecca Brett Nightingale. She's the team captain before Judge Gassett. I don't know really what that means. I guess that's a joke. But he gets into it sort of straight away that here's, the ch here's my chance to talk to you guys. And here's how serious this evidence is going to be. I'm not going to read it all because it's several paragraphs of him pontificating about how much they're trusting the jury to do their job and be honest. But still the gravity, the and gravity of the situation comes through. Like, and I mean, I think people understand when they're sitting in a courtroom for the first time in their life and they've got like a judge there and someone, it's pretty serious. Like you're not going to, especially if the elected DA is there, but like 
to continue to impress upon them. And and what this does, and I feel like we maybe mentioned this before, but I just want to say it again, is that it creates this this image in the jury's mind that Tim is their faithful guide through the justice system. And he's there for the sole purpose of guiding them and their willful, willful hearts through this very horrible situation that this woman has caused. And it causes a prejudice against her from moment one. I mean, there's literally no way around it because he gets the primacy with them. And because he gets, because he takes it so seriously and he uses these words like your duty and your, and the weight of the evidence and like the things that make him sound like, Oh wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. He's just the confidence of it. Um, when you have it contrasted with someone like Chris coming up and being like, I'm sorry for being here. And this, this is no fun for any of us. And you know, it's just not, it's just not. Look, none of us want to be here. <laughs> none of us want to be here. Okay. We're sorry. I would like to be somewhere else. <laughs> like, frankly, I don't really want to be here. I don't know if you guys are getting that vibe, but I'd rather be anywhere else. <laughs> One of Lyons' strikes is a woman named uh, nope. potential juror <laughs> number three that we're going to call her. And she is... I don't know why I like her, but like, look, if I was on this case and we talk a lot about like, what if, and I know it sounds like we're being armchair quarterbacks, which we pretty much are. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely armchair quarterbacks. <laughs> like, man. Like, apologies all around if that makes you mad as an attorney that we're sitting in here, like talking about something that someone did 20 years ago, but it is what it is. <laughs> it's not your podcast. <laughs> so Start your own <laughs> podcast. Your own fucking podcast. <laughs> Anyways, this one juror that, like, to me, I'm reading her voir dire and I'm thinking this is the perfect juror for April because she is, she's got two young kids. Right now, April has a seven-year-old and she is a single mom. This lady is not a single mom. She's married, but she has two young kids, like three and two. And she's a computer programmer, okay? So she's like a genius, right? April is also very high IQ. We know that because she went to Northwestern when she was 21, got a master's degree. So she's very programmatic in her thinking very detailed in her thinking this juror she's actually a manager also of people at um, an organization where they work with airplanes so she's highly trusted in her profession to do things that like could hurt people's lives if she doesn't do a good job uh, and it's 1999 in Tulsa Oklahoma like how many women do you know that were like in high tech um, at that time, there weren't very many. And so it's just kind of like an amazing find that we get this person on the jury that could really relate to April in a way that like probably a lot of people wouldn't be able to. Uh, and then she gets stricken, not by Tim Harris, not by the opposition. She gets stricken by April's attorney, um, Chris Lyons. And I just... This is one of those moments when I feel like it would have been so beneficial to have a woman on the on the team of attorneys that was working on this case. Like, even if even if it was just a woman sitting at the table to give a perspective about like this is what this is the kind of person that you want, because all they saw of her was she's a woman, she has young kids, and she's a highly detailed thinker, and that's a risk for us. But like. That, would, that wouldn't have been a risk for them. It would have been a win for them on the defense team to actually have another like highly intelligent woman on the jury. So Ms. Nightingale Bro. and this juror have a very long soliloquy together. And I think maybe the reason he cuts her is because they got along well and that she liked Nightingale. 
Oh, interesting. Which, you know, if you're in the room and you can read those kinds of dynamics, maybe it was a justifiable decision, but still, like... You know, I... Look, jurors just don't actually give a shit too much about, like, the pers- the affability, the amicability, like, the likableness of the attorney. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, and I think that that's borne out by, we, you know, we spoke to a juror, and we're going to hear from that juror at, at various exactly. points in this podcast, but she's like, I didn't fucking like Tim Harris. I thought he was a bully. But she still gave him the verdict he wanted. Exactly. You know? Exactly. She liked the defense attorney. She said that to us, right? But it, like, didn't matter in the end, which I think is a good thing, ultimately. Like, that's a positive. And so for him, like, if he is making his decision based on that, like, I don't think... Right. They're not caring. They're not going to wind up caring that much about how likable the attorneys are. No. I mean, I do think jurors take their jobs very seriously. Uh, There will be other people that disagree with me, but I do think... that doesn't mean that once they get back there, they haven't already made up their mind, but they take their job very seriously. And whether they like the attorneys or not, I don't think bears on whether on the factual decision of guilt. I think it's like, oh, it makes the trial nicer if I don't have to be in the room with somebody that I don't like. But it's like an ancillary concern. It's not something that's going to like decide something. And it's I, like, I guess in my, and my point in saying that is like, if that was the reason, like that shouldn't have been the reason. It should have been a like, little bit more. Like I just, I, it, that, and that's the only thing that's coming through that possibly could have been the reason for him, right? Like why get rid of this woman who could t- totally like, cause, and the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is like the, the defense of self-defense requires this jury to empathize and put themselves in April's shoes on the night of the shooting and decide whether what she what she thought about her safety was reasonable and true. Like, did she really believe that she was in imminent uh, danger of, of, of serious bodily injury at death? And so, like, if you want a juror who can empathize, like what you're, you're describing to me is obviously someone that could empathize greatly with April and her position. Exactly. And then, so the other risk calculation that you're making when you do a strike... And this is something that I can never really like adjust myself to is that when you strike somebody with your strike, you are risking that the person that comes to sit in their seat is a better juror than who you're letting go. And there's no fucking way in hell the next person that sits in that seat is going to be better than juror number three. But anyway, so potential juror number three, I just... I question it from a strategy perspective. It's not like a it's not like a make or break moment, but I do think it shows that like the lack of female influence on the defense team made a big difference. It made a big difference because either you or I, Leslie, if we had been there, would have said, "Why are you striking her?" Yeah, yeah, and like what. What boggles the mind also just is that there was there was an offer of help from a female attorney yes. to be present. She's an attorney, right? Yes. To be present at the trial and be there as an advocate and, at, for April and be at the table. Yes. Which And these visuals are, are important. I mean, having uh, Rebecca Nightingale as your number two on this case was certainly strategic yes. on Mr. Harris's part. I mean... Maybe they don't care if they like you or not, but they want to be able to see you doing your job and they want to see you are a zealous advocate for your client and they need to be able to see like you're taking notes, you're paying attention, you're you're doing your cross-examination, you're getting notes passed. But like for us, we can't really look back and see what Lyons and Ed were doing at the table. But I do think even just having a female perspective to say like, 
look, Safeheart's a good juror for us. Why are you just like give me some insight into why you would let her go? Yeah, because we're risking someone else coming onto the panel that we won't be able to strike. Well, but then, and then the person that the potential juror that winds up coming on is actually someone who has like a serious, serious history of um, sexual assault and violent abuse, and obviously ultimately also winds up getting stricken because of those factors. But it's just like the devil you know versus the devil you don't. And what every decision you make to strike throws another question mark in in the pan, the ultimate panel. Yeah. And then I feel like the nature of it, the further you get down in the number of people that get replaced, the newer people you don't know as well. You're not going to know as well as the people that you've been questioning for two days. So you have a freaking wild card up in here. Like, I would almost be the kind of person that would just be like, I don't want to exercise any of my stuff, unless I absolutely had to. Be like, I at least know what I'm getting with these people. I don't know anybody out there. Yeah, and that's another, I mean, that's totally another, like, strategic choice. You don't have to exercise all nine. But let's talk about potential juror five. We'll go with that. So this is a, this is like an 18-year-old kid, grew up in Texas, had just moved to Tulsa, right? And he gets, he gets uh, pulled into the pool kind of late in the game, right? Like he's not a part of the initial panel, but there have been some strikes for cause. So he gets pulled out of the, the, the remaining pool. And he um, has a long history of involvement with law enforcement, like vandalism. He, was, he tells this like, what to me, what I thought was kind of a funny story about running from a, a cop, like he was like smoking a cigarette at a school or something and like running from a security guard. It was just like total like hijinks style is what I like imagine. And this kid, like he got involved in some serious shit and he's got family members, like he had an uncle who was on death row yes. and like, you know, whatever. Um, but so that he gets pulled into chambers. They pull them into chambers to start really going through the criminal stuff in detail. And it's his juvenile record, by the way, which is sealed. And so that can't be used as a reason to bounce him from the jury. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's all like, that's all... You know, you can't be on a jury if you have a felony, but he's this is juvenile involvement. So, like, now he's an adult. He's turned 18. They can't use that against him to to get him stricken for cause. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. One nugget before they actually get into chambers with um, this potential juror, this kid. You know, there's this question of, like, you born and raised where? And he uh, is like, Wellasco, Texas. And he says it. He goes, you used the Spanish pronunciation? <laughs> it's like sorry and he's the court's like but you were born in texas right and i'm sure he probably was like tejas <laughs> oh god <laughs> it just like could not fucking and there's just so much more of that when we get into chambers so like let me let me get to the chambers they get back in chambers and the court's like okay please let the record show that we're in chambers mr i can't say your name again he clearly is so bothered by the person that's Latinx in the jury pool. <laughs> and it's, listen, okay, I'm a Spanish speaker, but this is not a complicated, <laughs> this is not a complicated last name. There's no like Nahuatl, like um, Xochimilco kind of like bullshit <laughs> that you have to like do where you like guttural noises. It's just a like Latin, Hispanic last name. Very run of the mill. Think Martinez, but not Martinez. Uh, <laughs> this judge just like can't pronounce it. So then like, of course, the and this whole, like before they get in chambers, they have gone through with this juror, like a lot of the history of his involvement with law enforcement and like his uncle being on death row. Like they've gone through it out in the in the in the galley with everybody else, and they get back there and there's this exchange that happens. Tim Harris says, "Okay, I've noticed a couple of times in talking to the judge, it's been sometimes difficult to find an English translation for the thought you want to get across." 
is English your second language and Spanish your primary? Which, first of all, I don't like in reading that there's nothing that comes through to me that he's like, I can't think of the English word. Like, I think he's interposing and intermixing like Spanish pronunciation of things like Velasco Tejas, like or whatever. And maybe saying his last name with the, the like Hispanic pronunciation. But there's nothing that comes through to me like he didn't understand or he couldn't respond in he's English. He's not struggling to like think of the right word. Right. And so he's like, is, is English your second language? And this kid is like, no, English was my first language, but just Spanish. I like talking Spanish more and everything. So it's easier for me. And so he's like. So, so Tim, <laughs> like, Tim is okay. trying right now. Tim is really trying right now to get him stricken because English is not his first language and he's not going to understand. Right. Tim is trying to save those peremptories and get this kid out for cause. And so Harris is like, okay. And he, kid, the kid's like, yeah, I, and I only went to school till the eighth grade. So, and Harris is like, well, there could be some fairly technical language in this case from experts and things like that. Do you think that your English is up to par? You'd be able to understand what they're talking about? And he's like, um, first of all, this kid, English is his first language. Technical words. I mean, he's a young kid, but he's like, I would admit some words I don't understand. You're talking about like legalese and like mental illness diagnosis, diagnoses and all of that. They just don't click. They don't come to me, you know? Uh, and so we get done with the in-chambers examination and Harris is like, all right, based on his last comments, Judge, I'm going to make a motion that he be, be excused for cause. He's already said that based on his handling of the English language, there are statements being made by the parties involved in this matter, other jurors that are somewhat foreign to him, which is not what he said. It's not what he said, Tim. There's a good possibility that some of the testimony that came from the witness stand, albeit a technical nature, and even if it wasn't, there's a chance he wouldn't be able to translate that effectively. This kid speaks English as a first language. There's not a translation problem. He's just young. He's a little bit uneducated. And you don't like him. And you don't like him. And somehow the court is, and the court like can't pronounce his last name. So the court's like, yeah, I can't, I can't fucking say his last name. Of course he can't fucking speak yeah, English. Can't. Let's get him out of here. And of course, I'm sorry to say there's no objection from the defense on this one. And um, the court's like, yeah, you're excused for cause, bud. Get on out of here. You done. And like, look, man, that juror was never going to make the panel. He was no. never going to. But you, but but strategically, Tim has just saved another peremptory challenge. For himself to strike the ones that he can't get for cause, which is a tactic that every attorney in trial uses. It's not the court's job to, scri to strike those people. But that's what he just did. We just saw an example of him taking someone that he didn't like because he has he has justice involvement. He doesn't like police. And he has he is of a different race, so he might be predisposed to identify more with the defendant because a lot of people who are of different races are sitting at the defense table. So now he has gotten rid of this kid with he got the court on his side on like a nothing cause. There's for, like for no cause for not speaking English. The kid speaks English. We like we sit through him testifying out there in the open about all the like just about so many different things. Like technical legalese, no juror is going to get that. He never said he couldn't be impartial. Never said he couldn't be impartial. Which is the test, by the way, for bit, for getting stricken for cause. Or if you really couldn't understand the language, if you were like struggling to even speak the language. But that's not what's happening. That's, that's literally not what's happening, but that is the reason give, that, that Tim strikes him in the court. Just like, yeah, because I can't pronounce Martinez. It's not Martinez. That's not the kid's name. But like, that's what that essentially that is what happens with the court in his, in his exchange with not being able to pronounce. So I don't know. That one just bugged me because I'm it's sorry, just not a cause. It's not it's just, for cause. It's racism. It's it is just racist. Period. I mean, there's not 
we hear from people who are in black and brown communities all the time that they never make it on juries. And here's a full on example of literally having no reason to strike someone and making up a reason back in chambers and then just getting rid of them and not even having to use your own strikes for it. Right. Like this kid was, like I said, never going to make this panel, but like to give him, to give the state just another out for a juror that they did not like. Unnecessary and dumb. Okay, so the next one we're going to talk about, potential juror number six. Uh, Very interesting profile of someone who struggles with mental health diagnoses. And as we know, there are some pretty prominent themes in this case of mental health issues um, occurring that we're going to get into um, as we get into the evidence. But um, we have a juror. He's a male. His sister was actually a jailer or a corrections officer at one of the prisons here in Oklahoma. But then during this time of the trial, she had just moved to Seattle. Um, And he is just kind of asking if one of the witnesses is going to be a Dr. Cooper. Uh, Dr. Cooper is who conducted April's um, competency evaluation to stand trial, which we're going to talk about also in a minute uh, on the next episode. But... um, yeah, so he's asking if Dr. Cooper is going to be a witness, and they're like, we're not sure if he's going to get called or not. And he says, well, I have, I've had interchanges with him before when I was uh, you know, getting evaluated for my mental health stuff. And so that might – they said, well, would that cause you to be impartial? And he says, no. And then he tells this story uh, that I find funny that I'm going to just read from the transcript. So – um he says how do you know dr cooper and the juror says well in 1990 i was well actually when i got out of high school i checked myself into a psychiatric doctor dr james o'carroll and i was hospitalized in 1990 for depression and i wanted to check myself out because i wanted to get away from the hospital and kind of backed backed out from it so dr edith harvey called down there and she didn't want to check me out basically she wanted me to stay there And they basically evaluated me how I was and they passed me as being okay. And that's how I got to know Dr. William Cooper, which isn't one of the doctors that he mentions at all. So maybe he isn't so good or okay, like mentally. But um, (laughs) he also tells a story about when he gets arrested for a DUI later. He says, so they ask, have you been accused of a crime? And he says, This is kind of hilarious. I was not drinking. I do not do drugs and I do not drink, but I was accused of a DUI because my psychiatric medication was having a reaction because the doctor decreased my medication when he shouldn't have. Dr. Richard A. Luke. And what happened, I was driving five miles an hour down Riverside with the lights off at night and a cop came down and got me, gave me a drunk test and I passed it. Said, why did you not? I can't believe you're not. He did it again, and I passed it, and he said, do you want to take a breathalyzer? And I wasn't functioning properly. I did pass the test because I don't drink, but I wasn't functioning properly, right? And he says, I said, no, 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 I don't want to take. So he booked me for a DUI, and I spent overnight in jail. They let me go the next morning. And basically, Judge Hanel takes me off. He basically found out about me being in the hospital and under medication and everything, and he gets rid of my DUI charges, and everything's (laughs) hunky-dory. So 
he's on kind of we've got kind of a trip with this guy he likes to talk you know the jurors that like to talk are the ones that always get stricken right. because they want to like over involve themselves and the, they want to feel important and that's like a bad sign for a juror so um <laughs> he you don't want anybody feeling too influ- influential back there right like he's gonna like talk too much or make people like wish they weren't back there with them or just try to like make himself feel self-important by being on the jury getting overly involved so he says is there anything about that experience where you got arrested for the dui that would make it so you couldn't be impartial and he says no i think i should have been more responsible even though it wasn't my fault the actions were not of my doing i should have stood up for myself more i should have basically said yes i want a breathalyzer that would have ended the whole trouble found out i wasn't drinking I wouldn't have went to jail that night. Nothing would have happened. I would have went home. The officer was doing his job. I wasn't mistreated in any way. Okay, so he's saying, I have had this issue with law enforcement, but I don't think it was their fault. I am able to be impartial, right? So you're thinking, okay, this would be a good juror for us because he's had institutionalized uh, institutionalization. He's been on psychiatric medications, He may be a little weird, but like still, I think it's good to have that mental health experience on the jury. Well, guess what happens? Um, Tim Harris asks to approach the bench after this little soliloquy about the DUI. Um, And Leslie, what happens? And he answers every single other question appropriately too, by the way. Like they ask him, what are the sentencing choices? He says, life or life without parole. He says, what is the burden on the state? He says, yes, the whole burden's on the state. He answers everything completely correctly. Like he's not struggling from delusions or like any type. I mean, he's just a little weird. He's all, he's taking lithium presently. Which um, is another, I think, I mean, another feather on the weight of like a positive thing in April's case, um, because he would know uh, if you don't need lithium, you shouldn't take it. You shouldn't fucking take it. It might make you have delusions. <laughs> might It might make it causes. So and we're going to talk about this um, at some point. Next we'll talk week. about it. We'll talk about it next week. Um, but like being uh, forced to take lithium when you don't need it and you don't have a condition that requires it will actually cause you to act in a manner that um, makes it seem like maybe you should have lithium. So it's like this awful self-repeating cycle of like, I don't need this drug. If I wasn't on this drug, I would be acting normal, but they think I need this drug. And so they're giving me this drug. And so I'm acting, I'm acting, I'm wilding out. And so uh, it's a really vicious cycle. But anyway, this, this juror happens to be on lithium presently. He's prescribed it. He clearly, he's got some issues that he needs it for. And he would understand that. Also, he says something interesting is they say, um, what would you accept anything any of the witnesses say as gospel? And he says, I don't accept what any psychiatrist says as gospel. That would be a bad thing to do. I don't even accept my own doctor as gospel. And I really think that Tim would have liked that about him because he's about to be facing off against Dr. Call, a psychiatrist who he wants to discredit every step of the way because he doesn't want the battered woman syndrome to be something that the jurors latch onto. So he's somebody who would be skeptical of Dr. Call off the bat. So you're thinking maybe he would be kind of like a good juror for both sides. Yeah. Yeah, that is inter- that's an interesting nugget that I don't think I remembered. Um, and so they, they eventually they get to the bench conference. They don't, they don't go back in chambers they're just doing this. Bench conferences are like super funny. It's just like a little timeout for everybody. <laughs> like everybody come up, take a timeout. 
and we'll, let's whisper to each other so that the jury can't hear. They even turn on this noise uh, deafening device now. So they that, do. Like, if you're at the bench and you're talking to the court, but you don't want the jury to hear, they turn on this like <laughs> sound. Thing. I have not experienced that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So That's they wild. really don't want you to hear what they're saying up there. So here's what Harris has to say during the bench conference. Uh, in his tone of voice when he's answering questions, especially in talking about his prescribed medication, he's under the influence of lithium and another drug that I'm not even familiar with for bouts of depression. And I believe he's given enough information here that I think he should be excused for cause. Well, what's the fucking cause? That he has to take medication? He's a, he's a mental health patient. He's a mental health... like, But like... That doesn't mean is you're that impartial. actual? Co- it doesn't mean you're impartial. He's testified that he could be imp- he could be impartial. He could be fair. And Mr. Harris goes on. I think there's just in the way he's reacting to some of the questions that he may even pose a safety risk to other jurors if he were to be in disagreement with them. Talk about speculating wildly. What are you even talking about? And the um, I can't. My my jaw is on the floor. I totally forgot. He basically said that this guy was dangerous. Like and, and let's keep going because he kind of the examples. <laughs> the, the examples he gives are like the, he's talking with his hands, so he's like, and therefore not to cause him any embarrassment, I'm going to make a motion that he be stricken for cause. Again, what's the cause? He's a danger based on what? Court asks for an objection from the defendant, and so Lyons is like, Judge, I don't feel like we approached any questions of this jury that would determine his ability to serve based on impartiality. I'm not necessarily saying that I haven't seen some of the things the counselor has seen. But I don't know that I necessarily interpret it the way that he has. I like, if you're going to make a fucking objection, let's object. Not let's object out the door. Like, Maybe you could this, interpret it that way, but I don't think I'm going to interpret that. Half-assed, the most half-assed objection possible. The court asked you for an objection. Right. I know. You're allowed to make it. And so the court actually goes, I don't think he would be partial. He's not saying he can't be fair. That's not the reason for the motion. The reason for the motion, I guess, the cause is that he's a danger. Unsafe. And then, of course, the defense counsel continues. I don't consider him dangerous for any more than Mr. who's really bent out of shape if things don't go his way. Court, I've noticed the same things that Mr. Harris has talked about also. I've noticed the body language of the jurors on the other side, and they are leaning way over to the other way. He's got his hands in the air. He's swinging them back and forth. They're trying to stay out of his way. I think he could be disruptive to the other jurors. I share Mr. Harris's observations. Now, look, I wasn't in the, I was not in the room, okay? But based on how they treated my kid with the Spanish last name and, and being bilingual, whatever hand motions this guy was making could not have been that wild. But they know that he has he has uh, a couple of serious mental health conditions for which he is managed he is managing them through prescription drugs. In fact, the very same prescription drug that April was, April was pre- prescribed when she was involuntarily committed. And so they're like, bye. But doesn't this like kind of illuminate the attitudes around like severe mental health disorders at the time? Like we're going to see that come into play too with the biases towards April when she starts exhibiting psychotic episodes. But like just the, the fact that... <sighs> In 1999, this guy can be so vulnerable and transparent with this group of strangers about his diagnoses, and then they literally are like, "He's fucking dangerous." Oh yeah, yeah. That's a super. That's a really good point. Yeah, I. He's talking with his hands. What Tim doesn't want to say is, "I don't want this juror on my jury because he will be able to identify how fucked up what's happened to my defendant is." As far as her mental health treatment and being committed twice 
involuntarily when she didn't need to be. So we can't have somebody on the jury that recognizes that. We need her to look crazy. Yeah. And that's a that's a peremptory strike. Again, I don't think this guy would have made the final panel. Not anyway. But like again, the state has has been able to that's keep two. That's that two. So they really wind I mean he gets to that's 11 11 strikes for the the defense or for the, the state. state. Yeah, that's one that I felt like it illuminates sort of some of the broader cultural understanding of people with mental illness at the time. Like, if you're not freaking one flew over or a housewife taking, it's like those are the two, those are the two extremes. You're in one flew over the cuckoo's nest with Nurse Ratchet or you're taking a bitty tiny bit of Prozac because your kids make you sad sometimes. And it's like, there's no fucking in between. You either need to be institutionalized or you have some cry days. Get the the mommy blues. (laughs) And those are the two kinds that we understand. Yeah. And like, if you're in one flew over, you're in a fucking mental institution. I never have to see you. And if you get the cries sometimes, I understand. Let's go have some rosé. But anything else, like if you're outside, you're functioning, you're driving yourself to the courthouse, but you take some lithium. I don't know how to. I don't know how to tolerate this. <laughs> Hundred and ten percent. These are just some of the things that stuck out to us in um, the voir dire. And you know, Tim Harris actually at one point during this process says in the record that he's never had a jury pool with this much domestic violence in it before he was even kind of struck by the number of jurors. And I don't know, like, I don't really know maybe I, you know, how many domestic violence cases has he tried yeah, at that I point? I don't know. I just wonder really if he's struck in by how many of them weren't ever investigated or prosecuted by any institutional body either in Oklahoma or anywhere else. Right. I mean, like, that's the most startling part of this is, like, if we're saying the system works and that we should be trusting in law enforcement to protect us, then how, in God's green earth, are we having 12 women come forward that have been molested and abused and beaten senseless and thrown down the stairs, and none of them have ever been investigated? Yeah, not one of those cases that we've talked about had a, any kind of criminal charges brought against the assailant, brought against the abuser. Nope. Every time they ask that too, like, was the person prosecuted? No. Was the person prosecuted? No. And it's like, we never get to hear from them. Like, well, that's a really systemic failing on our part. No, we never talk about that. It's right. just like, well, this, in this specific case, she shot a dude. <laughs> that's unreasonable. <bad. laughs> she was not reasonable. And totally was- unreasonable response to our systemic failings. <laughs> Uh, sorry but what else is she supposed to do and like i mean if you've been listening with us this far you have heard the like myriad horrors that have befallen her in this relationship and i don't know how you feel i mean i don't know if you're still with us but like when i think about this case at night i i feel like it is suffocating what was happening to her leading up to this there was no i mean when you take the coercive control the financial control the legal control because he does sue her like two or three separate times. Uh, and then the actual physical violence, he isolates her from her friends. She's being isolated from her family because of what's going on with the business, which we might talk about later. She really 
I mean, is at an odd trauma bonding too. Yeah, like he's the only one she can turn to for comfort. She, he's the only one she can turn to for money. And the the drugs. I mean, the drugs we're going to talk about in detail. We have to talk about that. I mean, it's not good for her. It doesn't help her. But like, it warps. I think it it, it just war- it, it turns everything up to like eleven. You know, it warps her perspective of reality for sure. Yeah. Which I mean, if I could go back and counsel her at the time, I would tell her to stop taking meth. Yeah, meth's a hell of a drug, man. But we also know people self-medicate when they're enduring. That's the. I mean, that's the other thing. That's like the cyclical nature of all of this. That one thing feeds the other. Mm-hmm. That she absolutely. And she, and, you know, I think April actually said that to us when we interviewed her. That like she began. The reason she began using on her own was a coping mechanism for everything that was happening with Terry. Mm-hmm. And she goes a year and a half with him. With no, it's not till ninety-seven. It's actually, it's almost two August years. That she two years those. that she's with him before using drugs. The last year, and like that's what you guys heard last week. We talked. We, we talked to you guys about December ninety-seven through up to the shooting was chaos. It was chaos because she's fall. She is falling further and further into addiction with him because I honestly feel like that was love to her at the time and. The only way she could feel close to him was with, was when they were using together because that was the only time he was happy. Right. Right. Because, like, Terry on the drugs is, is dangerous. Terry on meth is fucking dangerous. Terry off meth worse. is unpredictable and dangerous. Yeah. All right. This concludes. This concludes, I think. Yeah. Do you I'm have so any clear. final thoughts? I mean, any final thoughts on Voidier in general? Like, what do you think... Um, I think that a lot of the systemic issues that happen in our criminal justice system come from the voir dire system, honestly. And people write it off as like this like procedural necessity and it is super boring and everyone hates sitting through it. I swear to God, if I ever have to sit through it again, I will literally <laughs> we, we read myself out. How many pages of voir dire did we read? It's 300 five, times 5, 1,500 pages Yes, of voir dire yes. we read? And it's just the same questions, the same people over and over. I mean, if you thought reading it was bad, try doing it. It's terrible. That's five days. I mean, it was five days yes, of questions. Yes, an entire week. of, And a lot of them are having to sit through it. And it sucks. I'm not going to say it doesn't suck. It's our, it's our civic duty. I take it very seriously. I've never made it onto a jury. It's the only thing I've ever wanted. You never wanted. will. It's the only <laughs> thing I've ever wanted. You became, you became an attorney. Now you never will. I know. I know. Now I'm just totally out of the game it's not the best but it's our fucking system i mean it's not the best and like when i think that we should really relook at what the what the framers of the constitution meant when they said peers like are you talking about people that live in the same area with me is that a peer well god forbid peers actually makes its way to the fucking supreme court at this point in time because peers back then was white property owning men yeah so then like we'll go back to the 1600s definition of what peers are but I mean, honestly, if you want to fix a lot of the problems in the system, you would redefine the word peer to mean people who are from your community, who understand the same challenges that you have, who look like you. Totally. I agree. I would want a jury of women who have experienced violence. And I, don't th- I just don't think it's a given that they would acquit her. I don't believe that. No. Like, and I'm not saying that like there needs to be a full jury of women with DV, but like the fact that all these women with DV are stricken, you know what I mean? It's like, it's one thing. Like it's one. It's one thing when they say they can't be impartial. I agree. Like you got to go if you can't put it aside, can't be impartial. You got to go. But if you can, yeah, and you're being stricken because I don't know, you know, because you, you I don't know, know what the solution associate is. too much with the person. You're gonna give the person too fair of a trial. God forbid. <laughs>
Panic Button is a co-production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and Leslie Briggs. We're your hosts, Colleen McCarty and Leslie Briggs. Our theme music is Velvet Rope by Guillaume. The production team is Leslie Briggs and Rusty Rowe. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studio in Tulsa. Special thanks to Lynn Worley, Amanda Ross, and Ashlyn Faulkner for their work on this case. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, use a safe computer and contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing a review. Follow us at OK underscore Appleseed across all social platforms. You can subscribe right now in the Apple Podcasts app by clicking on our podcast logo and then hit the subscribe button. If you want to continue the conversation with other listeners, please join our Panic Button podcast community on Book Club. Join for free at bit.ly slash 3 N R H O H.